Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, for part two of an interview that I did with Pastor Joel Webbin on the topic of assurance of salvation. We were talking um, about this book, Am I Truly Saved? A Study Through First John by Pastor Joel Webbin. And it's a great book. I would suggest getting it. Go to the info section uh, if you are interested, and you can find a link there where you can purchase a copy. Um, I, um, I, you know, after we turned off the camera and stopped recording, I, J- Pastor Joel and I were talking a little bit about some things we didn't bring up in the interview that I wanted to just mention to you. And um, and, and they're important things, I think, to realize when we talk about this subject of assurance. The Corinthian church, Pastor Joel brought this up to me, and, I, and it's, it's a great point. The Corinthian church was a church that had messed a lot of things up. In fact, if you were to point to any church in the New Testament and say, well, that's a church that's off the rails, you'd probably say, or most likely say, the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, we see Paul treating the church at Corinth as if they are a church, as if they're Christians, they're believers, yet they're they're milky. <laughs> they're, they have problems. They have sin issues. Um, I mean, they even had problems. That, I mean, think about this, going to the temple prostitutes, as was their previous habit when they were pagans, and they're still doing that, at least some of them. And Paul is correcting them. He has a a, a sharp edge to the correction that he brings, but yet, at the same time, uh, he's not saying, well, you you just must not be saved. Um, And and I think that's an important thing to remember. And as I think through the process of church discipline outlined in Matthew 18, that whole entire process is designed to bring about repentance among true believers. And if someone is not a true believer, they won't repent. They'll be confronted with their sin, and uh, somewhere along the line, uh, it'll become clear that they're not interested in repentance, and that's when you treat that person like a a Gentile and tax gatherer, as the text says. And so, um, yes, there are people in churches who do not know Christ, who aren't of his in in the uh, visible church, there are people who attend weekly services, that's what I'm saying, who may be in that category, and that's, that's certainly possible, and um, you're going to know those things by fruit. Uh, that's, that's what we learn in First John. But at the same time, uh, you can have people who are participating or have participated in sin and uh, for, for ignorant reasons, for, um, because they're not fully sanctified, the side of heaven, and yet uh, there's, a, there's a fruit there, and that fruit is the fruit of repentance, when they come to a conviction of their sin, and sometimes that takes someone confronting them. And so uh, I just, I, I, I want to just be clear on how we're communicating this, uh, because we want our communication to be in line with what the Word of God teaches, and I think it is in this podcast, but I wanted to just mention that at the outset. These are some scenarios you see in Scripture of people who had sin issues. I mean, we could talk about King David, perhaps, as well. People who had sin issues and yet they're part of the body of Christ. They're, they're actually true Christians, they're true believers. And, uh, and, and part of that is proven by the fact that they have repented of their sins, that when they are confronted in their sins, as First John says, if uh, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. What a precious promise. So we're going to continue today. I'm going to jump right into it with uh, part two of my interview with Pastor Joel Webman on Am I Truly Saved? Hope this is helpful for all of you. God bless. Yeah, the all effect right. of your preaching is that the, the, all the Christians that you're preaching to in a church all of a sudden are all doubting their salvation. You're pro- there's probably a problem there because, yes. um, and this is one of the common things I've heard, and this was me in my teens. It was like, I want Jesus. I desire Jesus. I love Jesus. That's how I feel about it. And I, 
I just, I'm like, I just don't know if I'm his, <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. do the non-Christians out there, do they say that? Do they think that like, man, I just really want no. Jesus, but like, uh, man, it's too bad that he didn't choose me or too bad. I did that sin that, you know, uh, disqualified me from being his child. Cause I really like the guy and I really want to, I, I want to be close to him and as part of his family, like that very desire alone right there. And that hatred for sin, the realization of its death, the kiss of death that rests upon it, that that's a sign that you're part of the body of Christ in my mind. Like that's a good encouraging thing. Like, oh, you want Jesus. Wow. That's not anyone else in the world. No one else wants Jesus. You want Jesus. So like the real Jesus. That's part of what Jesus says when, you know, when, when the disciples of John the Baptist come and ask him, you know, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? The one that we've been waiting for. And, you know, he quotes Isaiah, uh, but, but he, he ties it up with a nice little bow at the end. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Um, and, and so, you know, because John, your ministry and mine, right. And so th- this might sound, so I'll just, you know, just admit the, you know, um, the elephant in the room, because uh, somebody might be listening to us right now and say, this sounds a bit hypocritical for uh, guys who often do full length episodes on false teachers or people in the gospel coalition, right. people in the SBC who, who, you know, you guys are saying, I don't think that they're Christians, you know, and then here you are over here trying to assure us saying that it's, it's not um, the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves, you know, and those like, well, okay, but, but it seems like you're inconsistently applying these things. Well, th- this is what I would say. I don't think it's hypocrisy and I don't think it's inconsistency. Um, what, what John is saying, what I'm saying is, you know, just a little bit of love. For Jesus. I, I really hope that I'm his, you know, those kind of statements that you just made. Um, here's the key difference. Um, I really hope that I'm his. Um, okay, who is who is his? Jesus. Okay, here's the very next question. Which Jesus? Which one? The Jesus of the Bible. And, and that's why um, the first test is the doctrinal test, the truth test, right? There's the relational test, the, the, te- the test of unity, love for, for the brethren, and a love that's not just um, a theoretical love, right? Like, like, a, like a Democrat's love, <laughs> right? Their love is I'll vote in such a way that forces conservatives to, to tangibly love the poor, right? So, so I'll vote. Right. I won't actually love them. I won't actually care for them. Uh, but I will, um, I will ensure with my vote that the government at, at the, at the um, point of a gun forces someone else to love the poor, uh, right? Because that's what James says, right? Don't just wish someone well, you know, uh, but, but actually clothe them and feed them, right? So tangible. So there's the unity test of love, the test of love, um, that, that, and, and what John says again and again with this test of love is he says um, that, that biblical love is tangible love. Biblical love isn't just well wishes, right? That's, that's AOC's love, right? That's, so she's not a Christian. No, biblical love is, is tangible love. It actually has hands and feet. So there's a love test, the test of unity, love for the brothers, and it focuses for the re- record. Um, it always starts with the household of faith. Right. So Galatians six, the Apostle Paul says, as often as you have opportunity, do good to to all, but especially that is prioritize a household of faith. First Timothy five, Paul gives a list of criteria for the poor. Um, He says, if we're going to help the poor because uh, Christ is infinite, but the church is finite here on earth and its resources. So we have to prioritize the poor. Jesus himself said you will always have the poor among you. Um, you're, you're always going to have the poor because not because God created the world in such a way that there aren't enough resources. Um, but the reason you'll always have the poor is because you'll always have sin. You'll always have the poor because you always have sin. And for the record, it doesn't mean that every poor person is, is poor because of their sin. Just like the man born, uh, born blind, the disciples say, Who, whose sin made him blind, his or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Um, but the reality is it was sin. 
it was sin that made him blind. Um, it wasn't his directly. It wasn't his parents directly. Uh, but if Adam had never sinned, then there would be no blindness. There would be no sickness. Uh, likewise, um, uh, poverty is always the result of sin, either the individual themselves, laziness, right? Or it can be, you know, there are a lot of people who are poor in China, and it's not because they're lazy. It's because of the sin of corrupt governments. But the point is this, there's always going to be poor people until Jesus returns, because there's always going to be sin. Now, John, you know this, I'm post-millennial, so I think things are going to get better. But even then, even with the, you know, the the, the Puritan hope, you know, and, and the nations being Christianized, not universalism, not everybody regenerate, but Christianized right. in a Christian worldview, um, and that being adopted by civil governments and legislating according to God's law, all those things, you're still going to have sin. You're still going to have poverty. And so my point is, um, what real love does is, is it actually clothes those who are naked. It actually feeds those who are hungry. And, and we begin with the household of faith, right? We prioritize our brothers. So it's real tangible love. And then the last one is obedience to um, Christ's commandments, the, the obedience to the law. So we have the truth test, doctrine. Uh, we have the, uh, the love test or unity test. Uh, which is love for the brothers. And then we have the obedience test. Um, are we obeying God's commandments? And I will look, look to Christ's two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then seeing those exposited in the 10 commandments, the first table of the law, the first four commandments in Exodus 20, this is how to love the Lord your God. And the next six, this is how to love your neighbor as yourself. So am I obeying God's commandments? That's a sign. Am I loving my brother? Um, in real tangible ways and not just uh, wishing him well, not just theoretically or, or, or protesting, you know, that someone should love my brother. No, are you <laughs> loving your brother? Um, and are you loving uh, not just your neighbor, but are you loving your brother for the very reason that he is a brother? Anyone who gives a cup of cold water in my name or, or, or whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers, because they are my brothers or visiting the one who is in prison. Um, what's contained in that, in the words of Jesus, what he's getting at is, um, is, is not just visiting the person on death row who's actually a serial killer and a pagan, um, but, but actually visiting those who have been imprisoned be because of righteousness sake, who are being persecuted because they're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. But all that, last thing I'll say, you know, but all that back to the first test. My point is God has mercifully, mercifully and, and providentially set up the Christian life in such a way that they're just like physical birth. You're born, right? So regeneration, spiritual birth, John chapter three, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born again, spiritually reborn. Well, just like physical birth, you are born and immediately there are vital signs, immediately. And, and the immediate vital signs are like breathing, pulse, those kinds of things. Well, likewise, with the spiritual birth, uh, God has designed it in such a way that there are immediately vital signs. When someone is born again, they, they, they're just now converted. Um, they, they don't have a, a, a long extended trajectory of sanctification and following Christ where they can point to all these ways that they've loved the brothers and visited those in jail uh, who have been wrongfully imprisoned and persecuted for their right. preaching the gospel. They, they can't point to all those. They can't point to uh, 20 years of obeying the Ten Commandments. And, all. you know, they, they, they got saved five minutes ago. But you know what? The first vital sign, the doctrinal test, the truth test, um, have they made a biblical confession? What's the first thing that we do in conversion, in salvation? If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And that confession, it's funny, um, your confession is not the gospel. Um, again, anything that has to do with you 
And what you're doing is not the gospel. Good rule of thumb. Uh, the gospel is what Jesus did. It, it is the person and work of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's the gospel. So even your profession is not the gospel. I would say that a profession of Christ is actually the first work of sanctification that gives us assurance of justification, which comes by believing the gospel. So immediately, there's a vital sign. Right after the new birth, you're given a new heart and the gifts of faith and repentance. And the first thing that you do in obedience to Christ is you profess that he is Lord. You profess that he is the Christ. You profess that he is your savior. And, the, and, and so immediately right off the bat in the mercy and providence of God, in the way that he has designed this, this lifelong process of sanctification, God has ensured that there would immediately upon conversion, upon justification, there would immediately be one of the greatest signs vital signs of sanctification to, to assure us of our justification. And, and that's an amazing thing. And then following that, baptism. Uh, following that, where I would say conjoined with baptism, um, is, is belonging to membership in a local gospel preaching church, law and gospel preaching church, Bible preaching church. Um, immediately following that, you're, you're being given every single week a, a, a renewing sign of assurance uh, because it is a covenantal sign. It's reminding you that you're in covenant with the Lord, uh, that you're in relationship with the Lord, that you are in Christ, in the beloved, that you are his body and that all the blessings of the Father are, are poured upon the head, just like Aaron, the oil poured upon the head and it drips down to the body. All the blessings of God, the Father given to the Son, who is the head of the church, trickling down to his body. And, and you're, you're being reminded of that every single week um, as you're partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's the renewal oath sign. So baptism, the initiating oath sign, where the one joins the many with a public profession of faith. And then and then the Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign. And, and I do believe that it should be weekly. I, I'm not saying that those churches that don't take it weekly are in sin, but I, I think ideally it should be a weekly practice. And so we're renewing our covenant. It's like uh, it's like renewing your marriage vows. Baptism is the wedding. And then, and then as Christians, we renew our our wedding vows every single week when we feast from the Lord's table, when, when we dine with the Lord. And, and, and so my point is, God has built into the, the fabric of the visible church and the way that we should do church. And in the Christian life, he has built in um, vital signs, uh, proofs, evidences uh, of assurance of salvation, that justification did in fact take place, God has built the, these in, and he hasn't just built them in at the end of, of the process of sanctification. Once we've, we've been following Jesus for 20 years, he has front loaded them. He's front loaded them at the very beginning, profession, baptism, church membership, Lord's Supper, like right away so that the new babe in Christ would begin their life from a position of confidence, not a position of uncertainty. And so all that back to the, well, what about the apostate? What about the guy in the gospel coalition peddling social justice and saying that this social justice is the gospel, right? Or a part of the gospel. Uh, well, that would be a heresy. That would be an absolute heresy. And some of these guys, I, I actually do believe, not all necessarily, but I do believe some of these guys um, are not actually Christians. And here's the deal, right? Um, John said, well, if there's just a little, I, I love him or I want to be his, um, here's the deal. 
it's not just any old profession. It's not a generic profession. It's not a general profession. It's a biblical profession. Um, and a biblical profession professes not just uh, Jesus, author of Sugar and Spice and Everything Nice, or Jesus, social justice warrior, uh, Jesus, uh, the, the great socialist of our time, Jesus, the Marxist, Jesus. No, it's the Jesus of the Bible. So one of the best ways to be assured um, yes, we want to have actions of obedience to his commandments. Yes, we want to have love in real, tangible, physical ways for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But also, one of the ways to be assured is to grow in doctrine. Find out what the Bible actually says about Jesus. Make sure that the Jesus you know, right, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So make sure with your mind, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. So, so study the scripture. Um, um, listen to faithful preachers, listen to guys like John in Conversations That Matters, read his book, um, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict, and, and find out who is the real Jesus. And, and, and then upon knowing who Jesus actually is, then can you say, yeah, I love him. Mm -hmm. I love him. This is who he actually is. Uh, he hates um, uh, unequal measures. He hates um, uh, bribes. Uh, he he hate he he commands me not to pity the rich and not to pity the poor. Uh, he you know so this is who Jesus is. Yeah. Now no, do you love very, him? That's very good. Uh, and, and I think um, in addition to that, there the difference in my mind is someone who's struggling with their salvation and saying, "I want Jesus, and I'm just afraid that I'm not His." Uh, they're they have the right Jesus in their mind. They they do have a love, even if it's a small kindling spark, you know, they're, they're, that, that could die in their mind any moment, but it's there. There's a flame. The, the heretic is someone who says, like the Pharisee, oh, I'm good. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not struggling with those things. I, I, I'm, I, I'm confident, but my confidence isn't rooted in the finished work of Christ. My confidence is instead rooted in, what I did. It's, it, there's a cause for boasting, right? There's some, there's some reason that I can go to other Christians and say, well, you're not an authentic Christian because you don't have what I have. And what I have is my works over here. That's so, so the basis upon which assurance is built is, is such an important part of this. So if that's, that's the false gospel, if, if you think and you're saving yourself or right. contributing to that. And that's, right. that's what and so I'm, much of what I think I, and you have criticized in, in some of the leaders out there that is rooted in is like, wow, that person um, either they have wrong Jesus or they or uh, they are trusting in themselves in part instead of in Jesus to save them. And that's not a salvation that uh, can actually save them. So, um, right. I agree. I think part of the yeah. problem, though, is so this is part of the difficulty of First John. All the signs, the test that he points towards are works. Right. The question As, is, but the question is, is, is it is it me working for salvation or are these are these works evidences of salvation? And is it Christ's work through me, right? Like the apostle, I worked harder than all the apostles, right? Least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church, yet I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but, but Christ in me, you know, or work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? But we got to finish <laughs> the very next thing is said is, it, but it is he knowing that it's he who wills and works in and through us, that which is good and pleasing in his sight. And so, so the, the point is, there is a sense, and, and, and I, I wrestled with that, because it does sound a little workspace, it sounds a little sketchy. But but that's what, you know, John gets at again, and again, in first John is um, by this, you know, well, here's a, Jesus himself by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love, one another. There are 
real tangible works, even our profession, like I said earlier, I believe that that is work, um, but, but it's a work of God through us. There's a difference in our works versus God working through us. Our love for the brothers, that's a work of God through us. Our obedience to Christ's commands, that's a work of God through us. So we're not saying, look at what I've done um, with, as a basis, a, a fleshly confidence. Look at what I've done. Right. It's not a but basis. We that's are looking to that's the problem. Yeah. Right. We are. Well, well my point, is, we, we are looking to fruit of sanctification. I think the fruit of sanctification, according to scripture, I believe the fruit of sanctification is one of the clear signs of justification. The, the distinction is knowing that the fruit of sanctification is God's work through us and not work of our own. I think, I think that's the clear, and, and this is what's hard, right? So one of the criticisms of the Puritans is too much introspection, right? So th there's, there is a balance between navel gazing, because, because what John does in his epistle is he is calling the reader, he's calling his audience again and again to look at themselves. He is. He's saying, uh, examine yourself, right? It's a self-examination. Examine yourself. Are you loving? Are you believing? Are you professing? Are you obeying? Um, he, he's calling them to look at themselves, um, but but uh, not to see what they've done in their own strength, but to look at themselves and to view themselves as God's workmanship, as as God's building structure. Or like the Apostle Paul said, you know, like you, you're our field, you're our harvest, right? Um, you you are our work, you are our sign. And so, looking at our lives and looking for actual tangible sanctification, but recognizing that it's the work of God, that, that Christ's work through me is one of the clearest signs of Christ's work for me actually being for me. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with all that. I, th I think that the distinction is, uh, so if I could use another example of a person, if you have the Pharisee over here who's saying it's uh, it's on the basis of these works or in part, I'm helped, you know, my gospel is uh, part of that is some works that are thrown in there. That's that's what's saving me or that's on the basis of this. I'm saved and I'm an right. authentic Christian. And it's the humble Christian who knows God, who looks at those same, well, not the same works, but similar looking works, at least, and they're authentic works motivated by Jesus and says, praise God, look what he's done in me. I can't boast in any That's of this. Right. There's nothing I contribute. If I, if, if, you know, that diagnostic question, why should I let you into heaven? I'm not going to start pulling out all my works. I'm going to say it's on the basis of his work. And my works are just, all they are is an evidence. It's fruit of a work that he started in me and not, um, not the root of it. It's not the basis for it. So that's, um, I think that's the difference between a Pharisee and, and a, the, the humble sinner who's beating his chest saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. And, uh, and the Sermon on the Mount's all about that. You know, the beginning is blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. They have nothing to offer God. They're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then, by the way, look at this standard I have that you Pharisees haven't met. <laughs> that's so, right. Um, I don't right. care how yeah, much social so, yeah, justice stuff you've done. You're not in because you're right. not trusting in me. You're trusting in yourself as the basis for justification. That's right. So I would say, yeah, exactly. I, I agree. I just say it's two things. So one, the Pharisee is saying, um, look at my works and that's the basis for, for, um, for, for my salvation versus the Christian is saying, look at God's work through me. Um, that's an evidence or a sign, a result of salvation. Right. So, you know, so, so the Pharisee is saying, uh, look at my work as the basis for my salvation. Exactly what you said. Whereas the Christian is saying, look at God's work through me in sanctification as a sign um, of, of justification. But also it's, it's not just 
um, the way that you're interpreting the works, uh, but it's also the works themselves. Because one of the things that Jesus says again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it is uh, it was said. You have heard it was said. You have heard, like one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's showing how um, not only are, are the Pharisees hypocrites uh, because, uh, because they, uh, well, it's just that, the word hypocrite. He doesn't just say that the problem with the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't indict, I'll say it like this. He doesn't uh, merely indict the Pharisees on the basis of hypocrisy or, uh, um, uh, or arrogance. He doesn't just say the bad thing about the Pharisees is that um, they're arrogant about their good deeds. Right. So so he doesn't just indict them, accuse them of arrogance. Uh, the Pharisees do a lot of good deeds, um, but they're prideful about it. No, he, he, he doesn't just call them proud. He calls them hypocrites. Right. So so what Jesus is getting at is he's saying they're not even doing the deeds. They right. don't actually. So it's not just they don't have basis, fruit. So they don't have. actual Exactly. Fruit. They don't actually have fruit. So so I think we have to properly understand the Pharisees. It's not just that they have fruit, but they take credit for it. And therefore, their pride exempts them from the kingdom of God. No, it's it's they boast of fruit, but they are barren fields. It's they they boast of of you know what I mean, but but they don't actually have uh, what they do. You know, he says like you you put all this pressure and restraints upon people, but you won't even lift it with a little finger. You mm. you don't do the things that you're demanding that everybody else does. And, and so the Pharisees, the big sin of the Pharisees, more than their pride. Um, that Jesus indicts, the number one sin he indicts is hypocrisy. And, and, and that right there should tell us the mere fact that Jesus says, you hypocrites, tells us that the Pharisees, um, they're not walking the talk. They, they talk a big game, right? They, they've got a lot of bark, but no bite. They don't actually. So it's not just that they, uh, they, they, they are prideful about their works. Um, they are actually workless. They, they, they do certain things, but it's all for the approval of men. Mm-hmm. And, and when, as soon as they're behind closed doors, the, the works go away and they live lives of luxury. Um, they're fat and indulgent and, um, and, and cruel. And they don't love the brothers. They don't love the brothers. They're not clothing the poor. They're, they're expecting everyone else um, to, to give to the temple so that they can profit off of it. Um, but, but they're not actually, you know, like, like the woman who gives the two mites, you know, worth one penny, right? And I know, I think you would agree with this, John. I think I've heard you say it, but um, we always look at that, you know, and say, oh, look, Jesus is, he's basically uh, commending uh, when Christians give all that they have. Whereas I think that that is, is Jesus, uh, this, this picture, Jesus is drawing the disciples' attention to her. He, he says she gave more than all the rest because she gave all she had to live on. I don't think Jesus is saying, and, and therefore emulate her. Uh, she's the example of what it looks like to sacrificially give. And this is the standard for all Christians to give everything they have. No, I think Jesus is drawing the disciples' attention and saying she gave all uh, that she had and saying she gave more than all the rest. He, again, is, is I think his point is not saying everyone should give all they have. No, I think he's saying, look at those hypocrites, the Pharisees. She yeah, actually victim. gave more than them. They came in sounding trumpets, you know, carrying their offering, you know, and, and with a parade and robes and tassels and laid it on the altar. Um, and she comes in ashamed. No one sees, puts two small little coins in there, but but she actually gave more. And I think if, if Jesus, if the disciples had press, pressed him and said, and is that right? Should we all do that? I, w- I think Jesus would say, no. So okay, Because so, Jesus condemns that later on when he says the Pharisees are actually causing people to give away money at the expense of caring for their aging parents and honoring their father and mother. Right. No, that's good. If, so if you had a Pharisee in your office and said, 
uh, and, and you versus someone who, let's say, is struggling with their salvation, but is humble about it. But you have a Pharisee there. You would pull out these tests and they would fail them. That's that That's when you start drilling down, you get to the heart of the matter. You're like, hey, wait a minute. Like you don't have any evidence to actually point to here. It's all fake fruit. It's all uh, all, all the you know hustle. And it, it's, it's all this 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 show that you're putting on, but none of it is actually legitimate. And, and then That's you would, and, and that would condemn them. Whereas the, the humble person who comes in and says, I'm struggling with this, you can, and, and you find actual fruits. Like, well, you know who Jesus is. You love him. You, uh, you know, look, look at the love you have for your brothers. I know it could be better because it could be better for all of us, but you're, you're finding actual fruit there. That's the difference. That's I would right. get. So, um, exactly. Let, so the let, baby infant believer wrestling with assurance has, uh, they may have small fruit. They may have right. some fruit but they have real fruit in closing. I want to do Pharisee, you go, you look at his field from a mile away and he, it looks like a harvest, but then you walk up into it and it's, uh, it's paper mache. It's not, right. it's not real. Right. You know? So I, I wanted to get your take on a passage real quick. Uh, just Hebrews 10. And there's a lot of these passages that it almost reminds me of some of the things in first John, but it sounds like super harsh to someone. I think if you just take it out of context, so it's first, um, 19 or no verse uh, 26 says for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there is no longer there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries and so this is something that i've seen people take and be like well i sin willfully <laughs> game over i guess you know i i thought i was saved but now I, I did a willful sin. Is, is that what Hebrews 10 is saying? I mean, it, is, is it, can someone be saved or can someone think they're saved? And then all of a sudden, you know, one sin that they like, well, they chose to do it. Therefore they're out because we'd all be out in my mind. If that is really what it's saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You cannot read. So Hebrews six would be another one. Hebrews six, Hebrews 10. Um, you cannot read these texts um, that, that talk about apostasy. So they, these are texts that talk about not just the pagan. Um, but but these do uh, mention the apostates. So somebody who, who is a part of the visible church, um, who but who is not a part of the invisible church, who's not truly born again. Um, and so, you know, the, the Presbyterian is going to look at, at these and say, you know, well, they're, but they're part of the new covenant. Therefore, they're, you know, they're a stricter curses, right? Blessings and curses for those who are part of the new covenant. That They have the external blessings of the new covenant, but they didn't actually, you know, lay hold of the internal blessings, the spiritual eternal blessings through faith. Um, so they would use their new covenant theology, you know, so they have, they have, you know, circles like um, the, the wider circle is uh, new covenant. Um, and then, and then within that would be, you know, the decretal elect, you know, and, and those who are not just in the new covenant, uh, but those who are actually born again, we do the same thing as Baptists, um, but we're not going to use it. We're going to say the new covenant is reserved because the door to the new covenant is faith, genuine faith. Um, and so we would say uh, the new covenant, uh, every person who has ever been under the new covenant will be in heaven. <laughs> That's the Baptist position. That's what makes the new covenant better. The, the, the new covenant is not just uh, wider in its scope. In the old covenant, uh, but it's deeper in its promises. It's not just a bigger covenant, it's a better covenant. It's founded upon better promises. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by his blood. And I would say as a Calvinist, not a single drop of Christ's blood will ever be found in hell. I would also say that the prayers of Christ are always efficacious, right? He specifically says in John 17, right before his arrest, I do not pray for the world because Jesus isn't going to pray for people that he's not going to also die for. 
Jesus, you know, why would Jesus die for the world if he wouldn't even bother praying for all the world? So Jesus prays for his own and for those that, that he will give him. And at the right hand of the Father, he is interceding on behalf of all his people, praying his high priestly prayers of intercession. And I would say his prayers are efficacious. Just as the blood of Jesus does not fail, the prayers of Jesus do not uh, fail. And Jesus says, who's the target of his prayers? And, um, the new covenant people, those in the new covenant. And, and who... Um, is he mediating this covenant? All the new covenant people, he's mediating the covenant and he's doing it by his blood. So we would say as Baptists, we say the new covenant is the elect, is the elect. They're, they're one and the same. These are synonymous. Uh, however, there is a wider circle, which is the visible church. You can be a part of the visible church without being a part of the new covenant. Presbyterian is going to say uh, the new covenant is the visible church. And then there's this smaller circle within. So I, I say that just to say Baptists and Presbyterians, we both have two circles, a wider circle mm -hmm. and a smaller circle. We just have different language. We would say that it's it's the visible church as Baptists, visible church. Um, and then there is uh, the invisible church, which is synonymous with the new covenant. And then Presbyterians would say visible church is uh, the visible church is synonymous with the new covenant. And then this smaller um, um, invisible church is is the decretal elect. And so we would differ on that. And with that, therefore, we would differ on on who and when um, receives the signs and seals of, of baptism, the Lord's Supper. All that being said. Um, both Presbyterian and Baptist, the principle is still the same with Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, that these are apostate passages, apostate passages. Mm. Um, and again, I don't believe this is speaking to the majority of the visible church. The majority of the visible church is filled with apostates. I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that, that that actually is the minority. Um, uh, but, but all that being said, it, it does depend. <laughs> when I say visible church, um, I'm, I would not consider Hillsong. I'll just be real frank. Hillsong, I wouldn't, not only would I say this isn't the invisible church, I would say this, this isn't even the visible church, right? The visible church right. is a church that has a faithful gospel witness that preaches the scripture faithfully, uh, that administers the sacraments or ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper faithfully. Um, I would, I would say that uh, belonging to the visible church also isn't mere church attendance, but is church membership. So when I say visible church, I'm saying all those who are members and have been therefore baptized in a gospel preaching church. If that's the visible church, and I believe it is, then then apostates in that circle are are few and far between. Okay, so all yeah. because some people would be like, well, what about Hillsong? What about Joel Osteen's church? What about, you know, <laughs> right. I would just say these aren't churches. These aren't churches. Right. Um, so so all that means. Okay. So so to your question, Hebrews 10. So Hebrews 6 is the same kind of thing, but Hebrews 10. Um, you know, verse 26, it says this, uh, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So willful sin. Well, here's the all sin is willful. All sin is willful. And, and yes, under the old covenant, Israel, there were, you know, there were unknown sins and, 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 you know, there were, um, there were certain commandments, um, that, that if the people discovered later on in hindsight that they had sinned, you know, there's particular sacrifices that needed to be made. And likewise, we would say even under the new covenant, there are sins of ignorance, but even sins of ignorance, in a sense, are willful sins. Um, ignorance is not innocence. Um, there are certain things that we do. Uh, but ultimately, all of it tracks back to our responsibility, some sense in which we fail. Uh, so this is not saying that uh, the only sin that Christians can, can commit is a, a blind sin, ignorant sin. Um, certainly, we're going to sin will, willfully. Um, and when it says there's no, no sacrifice remains for sin, this is John Gill. Uh, John Gill was the, uh, the preacher in the same church that Charles Spurgeon preached in, uh, but 100 years prior. He's a uh, Reformed Baptist. 
uh, theologian, he said this, meaning not typical sacrifice, for though the daily sacrifice ought to have ceased at the death of Christ, yet it did not, in fact, until the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70. But the sacrifice of Christ, which will never be repeated, Christ died once and for all, this sacrifice, um, because Christ will no more die, his blood will not be shed again, nor his sacrifice reiterated, nor will any other sacrifice be off offered. There will be no other savior, no other sacrifice. There is no other salvation. Salvation can be found in no other, nor any other name whereby men must be saved. So I actually think, remember, this is the letter to the Hebrews. So much of the New Testament is written to Gentiles, Galatians, Ephesians, Romans. Corinthians. Right. Um, but this is written to a Jewish audience. And so I actually think that what, um, and I believe it was the Apostle Paul, <laughs> but so what the Apostle is getting at, and I think it, it was Paul, I think what he's getting at is um, there, there is no more sacrifice um, at, in the temple. Jerusalem has nothing to offer you. Um, you can't go back. You, you can't go back uh, to, you know, because uh, prior, what he says is uh, the blood of bulls. This is verse four, same chapter, Hebrews right. chapter 10. Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Um, consequently, when Christ came into the world, sacrifices and offerings, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So I think what the author of Hebrews is saying to his Hebrew audience um, uh, uh, Christian Jews, is I think he's saying, um, you can't go back. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can't go back to Jerusalem. You can't go back to the temple with these annual sacrifices and monthly sacrifices and all these different feasts and rituals. Um, there is no forgiveness left in Jerusalem. The moment that Jesus died and rose again, the temple should have been all those rituals. If if Israel had embraced their Messiah, they, they would have stopped the sacrifices right then. And yet what we see is a 40-year overlap of the old covenant winding down and the new covenant kickstarting. But the old covenant, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, as John the Baptist says. And, and, and so the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right around the corner. Jesus died and rose again. The kingdom of God is initiated and the old covenant um, is, is on the chopping block. And then boom, in AD 70, um, God ensures that and in his mercy that no one would go back to Jerusalem in order to find forgiveness of sins, that it's only found in Christ Jesus. So I, I think that what the apostle is getting at is he's saying, um, he's encouraging, don't go back um, to your, your um, Ju Judaic roots. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the blood of bulls and goats. Uh, look to Christ. Um, and if you do go back, if you do go back, nothing remains but a fearful expectation of judgment and of fury. So, so one of the big sins that I think he's getting at is the sin of unbelief. Those who wouldn't trust in the sufficiency of Christ and his atoning work, and therefore they would be leaning back on and relying on the blood of bulls and goats that never took away sin, right? God, it says um, that he looked over former sins, so that at the proper time, at, at the fullness of time, um, he would ultimately take away the sins of men in Christ. So the blood of bulls and goats 
uh, never atoned for sin. All it did is, is it helped God, as it were, um, to put sin on layaway, um, to, to look over sin for a season until Christ would come and actually deal with sin, um, actually atone for sin. And, and so what, what, what the apostle is saying is don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back to the animal priestly sacrificial system. We have one priest, one sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a king. He is also the sacrifice himself. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you don't believe this and you deliberately go back to Jerusalem and look back to Judaism uh, for the hope of salvation, uh, Jerusalem has nothing for you but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I think part of what he's getting at is you go back to Jerusalem, instead of listening to what Jesus said in all of that discourse and his warning in Matthew 24 to flee to the mountains, you go back to Jerusalem and uh, it's about to get sacked in AD 70 and there will be fire, there will be weeping. And that's, so I, I actually think that, um, and I believe that Hebrews was written before, and I believe just before. Um, so I would personally agree with guys who have dated the, the writing of Hebrews around like AD 64, AD 67, even just a few years right before the fall of Jerusalem. So that that is my interpretation of that, is that um, the apostle is saying, Jerusalem has nothing for you. That's not where forgiveness of sins is found. In fact, quite to the contrary, um, believing that that's where uh, forgiveness of sin is found is a sin itself, and it is particularly the sin of unbelief, uh, which is a sin that, that by and large is committed, uh, well, not just by and large, I would say exclusively committed by the unregenerate. And therefore, if you go back to Jerusalem in a, in a tangible temporal sense, <laughs> fire and judgment awaits Jerusalem, it's going to get sacked. And in the, in the eternal sense, judgment also awaits you because, because your choice to go back to Jerusalem is a choice to trust in the blood of bulls and goats over the blood of Jesus, which is a sin that only a non-Christian can commit. Christians, let me say it like this, Christians struggle with doubt, but doubt is dynamically distinct from the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. That's that is the sin that Jesus point. is most bothered by again and again throughout the gospel narratives. And that um, even the person doubting their salvation, all these kind of things, struggle with assurance. Um, if you are in Christ, and I would say to your friend, it sounds like your friend is in Christ. You are not committing the sin of unbelief. Uh, you are struggling with doubts. Uh, you need to grow in your faith. You need to grow in assurance. You need to believe the promises of the gospel. Um, but but that's I would say that that wrestling with assurance and doubt is not the same as unbelief. And I think that this, this particular sin that's being mentioned here, if any, is the sin of unbelief. Specifically, what unbelief? Unbelief in the atoning sufficient uh, sufficiency of the blood of Jesus. That is an excellent uh, uh, clarification or a distinction you made just there, I think, with doubt and unbelief. And, and, another, and a clue, uh, everything you said was so helpful, but if you go to the end of the passage, uh, one of the clues that this isn't believers is he says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So he's saying those this group in verse 26, they're not the same as the group in verse 39 who have faith. And, and so they right. don't have faith <laughs> in verse 26. Um, that's that's right. the root issue there. So, uh, oh, man, Joel, this has been so helpful. And I think, um, I think many out there are going to be watching this and uh, using this as, um, and hopefully your book to combat uh, the, the, this pernicious issue uh, that will always, I guess, be there uh, in the church of people who uh, just 
are doubting their salvation, having a hard time believing they're good enough or that Christ is good enough to um, save them or, or whatever the case may be. So I, I just want to give people the resource. Where can they get your book here? Where can they go? Yeah. So am I truly saved? A study through first John, um, go, go to right response ministries because, um, because that way uh, we'll get um, uh, that, that that's how we can get the most proceeds from your purchase of the book. And you can do it um, a few ways. One, you can, um, if you just want a digital copy, you can give a gift of any amount at rightresponseministries.com, rightresponseministries.com. Uh, you can uh, click on donate um, on, on, the, on the menu tab, click on, click on donate. And there's ways to become one of our monthly uh, partners. Uh, but there's also a way to just give a one-time donation. And for a gift of any amount, you can receive a digital copy of the book. So if you're content to just have a digital copy of the book, you can give one dollar. And, and I will not be offended in the slightest. I want people uh, to know that they are in Christ. So um, if you're wrestling with assurance and you don't have uh, a lot of money, then just give a dollar and um, and you will get a digital copy of the book. If you want a physical copy of the book, uh, you can buy it in our store. And I think it's like 10 bucks or something like that. Yeah. Um, and plus, plus shipping and we'll ship it out to you. Um, and if you do want to partner with our ministry on a monthly basis, um, then you can do that. Also, you can be, we call them our responders. It's like our club members and uh, you'll get a physical copy of the book that way too. And you'll also get a, a Soli Deo Gloria t-shirt. So if you want to be a monthly partner, um, then you'll get a physical copy of the book and a shirt. Um, if you just want the book, then you can buy a physical copy, as many as you want in our store. Or if you just want, you know, it's just like, I, I don't care about the physical copy or anything like that. I need assurance of salvation today. I want to read it today. Then give $1 and our, uh, click on donate, one-time gift, $1, and uh, we'll give you immediately a digital copy of the book. You can start reading it right now. Excellent. Well, Joel, thank you so much. It's been so helpful and you're very knowledgeable about this. And, I, and I, I'm sure this is going to bear fruit real fruit um, in eternity as people listen and gain assurance. So God bless you and uh, looking forward to when we talk next time. All right. Great. Thanks. God bless. Bye now. Sick of being upsold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.